for the reading of God's Word from Titus chapter 3. Hear now God's Word. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I sent, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychius, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I want to commend you for being here today and for being here last week and the week before that and the week before that. And, that you, and, and to commend you for the fact that you keep coming back to worship. You keep coming back to hear the Word of God. It's not always easy to hear the Word of God. In fact, it's often difficult because this is truth. God can't lie. He tells the truth about us. He tells the truth about the world. And I don't always like to hear the truth about me. It's uncomfortable. It's convicting. But that's a good thing. Because when we get convicted, when we are wounded, we go and flee to the great physician, and he also heals us. He has the remedy for those very wounds that he inflicts, and he inflicts them. He loves us. He chastises us because we are his sons. And so thank you. I'm very encouraged to see you week after week. I do want to acknowledge that this sermon today was especially, I was especially uh, instructed and, and moved by the commentary by John Stott uh, on the third chapter of Titus. And so a lot of what I'm going to be bringing to you, I learned from him this week and last week. So um, here we go. Last Sunday we saw Paul's instruction to Titus as to how he was to instruct older and younger men, older and younger women, as well as bond servants who were members of the church. He said, this is how we bring about order. And, and now he's going to turn and he's going to broaden this and address how we should conduct ourselves toward those who are outside the church. He moves from our homes to the outer circle of society. And again, he will begin with our duty of submission to the authorities 
and for being considerate to everyone. Everyone. And then he will, from there, move to give us the doctrinal foundation and motivation for such behavior. So in verses 1 and 2, he says, remind them. That's how he begins this. And so let us know that this, he lets us know that what he's teaching isn't new. This is something, in fact, he's already said in this letter. He's kind of repeating it and broadening it, but he says it pretty much every time he writes to someone. The churches have heard it before. The Bible often warns us of the dangers of forgetfulness and makes promises to those who remember. A bad memory was one of the main reasons for Israel's downfall. We read in Psalm 106, Our fathers in Egypt did not remember the multitude of your mercies. They forgot his works. How do you forget the parting of the Red Sea? How do you forget the providing of the manna? How do you forget these things? And yet we come back every week to the Lord's table because this past week we forgot. We are forgetful people. And thus, uh, for example, Jesus complained to his disciples in Matthew 16, Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up. Did you forget that already, Jesus said to his disciples? Thus we see the Apostle Paul, Peter, and John stress the importance of their reminding ministry. John Stott says, All conscientious Christian teachers, once they have been delivered from the unhealthy desire for originality, Take pains to make old truths new and stale truths fresh. So here we go. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Not unlike Crete, we live in a world filled with rebellion. We live in a world filled with insurrections. And Paul had already written to Timothy about the need to Pray for those who are in authority. And now he writes to Titus about our Christian duty to obey them. There is that pesky word again. Obey. Biblical wisdom knows where the true exceptions are, but there is often a shortage of biblical wisdom. The Christian citizens can never give the state, of course, an unconditional allegiance that would be to worship the state, and that would be idolatry. We know that. That's, that's a part of this equation. Nevertheless, our Christian duty, in principle, is to submit to the state, as Paul has explained in Romans 13, because the state's authority is delegated by God himself. The state, the rulers, are ministers of God. And this means, of course, that our first loyalty is to the Lord. And if our duty to him comes in conflict conflict with our duty to the state, of course, our duty to God uh, takes precedence. As Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. But it's not enough, however, for Christians to be law-abiding Paul is going to argue a bit further that we are to be public-spirited as well as to, as he said, be ready or to be eager 
for every good work. And he's speaking of that in the context of our ministry to the broader world. Wherever we have the opportunity, or as Paul will write later to the Galatians, and let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this is an all-encompassing call for us to be servants to one another in the context of the church and to be servants to the world in Christ's name. The emphasis on doing good uh, in this text only clarifies our responsibility. It not only clarifies it, but it limits it. We cannot, for example, cooperate with the state if it promotes evil instead of punishing it and opposes good instead of rewarding it. He says in verse 2, speak evil of no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So not only do we have an obligation to live like Christians under civil authority, but this obligation extends to all of our relationships with everyone in the community. Paul begins with a reference, uh, with a reference to no one, and he ends with a reference to everyone. First, negatively, we are to speak evil of no one and to be peaceable, which in Greek is also negative, which means to avoid quarrels. It is unchristian to collect dirt on other people, information. I know things about all kinds of people. Let me whisper in your ear. Because that is simply used as a means of power over them. And then, so you whisper, did you know that he or she? And then you fill in the blank. And if you whisper it, somehow that makes it okay. Because I'm just, now we're going to whisper it to ten people. You may as well just shout it out. And then I respond, no, I didn't know that. At least I didn't know it until you told me. Busybodies are reservoirs of information and, by the way, misinformation about others, mostly negative information. At least that's what they're hoping for. Calling it research or a background check doesn't change what it is. Peter likewise warns against those who think other people's business is their business. He writes, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or... A busybody, which he puts in right in there with a murderer or a thief, because they're really doing the same thing, right? A busybody in other people's matters. So we are not to be offensive. We are not to be quarrelsome in our speech or behavior. But essentially, we mind our own business. So that's the negative. That's how we're to interact with people. We are to not be quarrelsome, and we are to be peaceable and gentle. Second, positively, the positively part, we are to be gentle, showing all humility to all men. Many of you heard me say a lot, humility is always attractive. Arrogance is always ugly. Humility. 
The word translated gentle means to show graciousness, especially to be conciliatory, or just a good word to remember is kind. Many of you have, uh, uh, but if you haven't, let me recommend Jason Farley's book, In Pursuit of Kindness. Very powerful book. The word translated humility may also be translated courtesy, considerateness, or meekness. Paul alludes to both of these virtues in Jesus himself in 2 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And now Paul tells Titus, remind us, to remind us that there is to be no limit to our humble kindness or how many people we extend that to. We should be known for that. You should be known for that with everyone. And now Paul gives the theological and doctrinal reason. So let's summarize that. So when it comes to the outside world, we're going to obey and submit to those who have authority, legitimate authority, everywhere we can. We're going to be good citizens. We're going to be servants to the community. And we are going to extend kindness and gentleness and all those qualities to every person individually. So I'm courteous to the people, the wait staff and the people at the store, and the checker, and a stranger, and all those things. Those are Christian behaviors. Those are not separate from your Christian life. Those are acts on behalf of Christ. You and I always represent him. We are the body of Christ. So Paul now gives the theological and doctrinal reasons why Christians must live this way in relation to the world. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In other words, there but for the grace of God go I. We can be disgusted constantly by watching the news. There's all kinds of ugly, ugly things in the world. Are you really surprised? There but for the grace of God go you. We were ourselves once antisocial, but he, God, changed us. He saved us. He rescued us. And we didn't contribute one iota to that salvation. It was his free grace and his grace alone. In Ephesians 2, Paul expands on this critical point. And you, he made alive. Why? Because you were dead in trespasses and sins. That was your condition, dead. Like Lazarus. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that's the unbeliever, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just like them. And then the the best words in the Bible, maybe my favorite word, but, but God. But God who is rich in mercy, 
Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that Not even that is of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the product of, not as the result of your works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Good works didn't save us, but once we were saved by the grace of God, then the good works began to flow. That's the evidence. That's the fruit of the grace of God. In other words, get off of your high horse and remember that all your righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That's your good stuff. And then verses 4 through 7, a comprehensive account of the gospel. This is one long sentence. 72 English words. In fact, I would really recommend, and I've begun to do this, I'm not quite, I don't have it nailed completely, but as I was working on this, I said, we should memorize this concise statement of salvation, and it would be hard to beat this single long sentence. And I want you to notice it hinges upon the main verb in verse 5, he saved. Listen. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration um, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly in Jesus uh, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we want to unpack this this morning. I want to give you six ingredients of salvation. First, the need of salvation. Why is salvation even necessary? Verse 3, Paul paints an ugly picture of the state and conduct of unregenerate people, and in doing so, he describes what we ourselves used to be like, And, of course, this doesn't make anyone feel good about themselves, but it's the truth. And so, first, in our unbelief, we, too, were foolish and disobedient. And foolishness alludes to our thinking and feelings and and disobedience uh, and behavior. In other words, we were both mentally and morally depraved. That's everybody's problem. You know, we see conflict between races. We see it between nations, this group and that group. But all you need is two people, any two people. Put them in a room, and you're going to have conflict eventually, even the ones that love each other, right? You have a little conflict at your house, don't you? So why are we surprised when it happens on a global level when it happens on a personal level, too, because you know where the problem is? Me. 
I'm the problem. And you're the problem. We all have a problem. Second, we were deceived and served various lusts and pleasures. I have all these things I want, and now I start trying to justify those things. So we were not only foolish, we were deceived, Hebrews 3.13, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a liar, and the first person it lies to is, your, is you. It deceives the person that's doing the sinning. Moreover, we weren't only disobedient, it says we were enslaved to that. And Jesus answered them, John 8, 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. If you're not, then just quit sinning. Third, we live, and these are subheadings to our first point here, the need of salvation. Third, we live in malice and envy, which are very ugly twins. Malice is wishing people evil, while envy is resenting and coveting, coveting their good. Both disrupt human relationships. Fourth, we were hateful and hating one another. All sins are hate sins, are hate crimes. Because they are all the opposite of loving God and loving our neighbors. The world is a hateful place, a a world full of hate. Paul's point is that, or should be, a dramatic contrast between what we were and what we have become in Christ. That's what he's calling for. As William Hendrickson puts it, it is a contrast between submissiveness and foolishness between obedience and disobedience, between a readiness to do good and an enslavement by evil, between kindness and peaceableness on the one hand and malice and envy on the other, between being humble and gentle and being hateful and hating. How can we or any sinner escape this kind of world? And the answer is given in verse 5. Because he saved us. He saved us. He rescued us from our bondage and changed us into new people. The New Testament loves to emphasize the transformation. I want to ask as I read these four passages, does this describe you? But God, this is Romans 6, 17 and 18, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin... Yet you obeyed from the heart that from that form of doctrine to which you were de- you, you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. First Corinthians six nine through eleven. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then Colossians 3, 5 through 10, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are put off but now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So that's why we need salvation. Second the source of salvation, where it originates. If we were truly deceived and enslaved, one thing is obvious, we cannot save ourselves. Yet the world is deluded and full of people who are trying to save themselves. It teaches that salvation comes from within you. Question 20 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, Did God leave all mankind to perish in a, in a state in and a state of sin and misery? And the answer is, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to eternal life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and, in, and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. He chose us in him, according to Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to adoption by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So the only source of salvation is God, our Savior. We love him because he first loved us. Hebrews 5, 9, And having been perfected, Jesus became the author, that is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is the source. Third, the ground of salvation. What does this rest on? What is its basis? Verse 5 sets God's salvation in contrast and contrast his mercy with our righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we already read, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Who has saved us, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given us in Christ Jesus before time began. If you ask the average person, even in our community, that has been saturated with the Bible for a couple hundred years, how is one saved? How is one right with God? Are you right with God? How many people do you think would begin to tell us about how they think they're pretty good? They think of it as some kind of, uh, compared to other people, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm probably okay. It's my goodness that matters. 
Your goodness has nothing to do with it whatsoever. In fact, that's the first thing you've got to get rid of, is your goodness. That's the first thing to go. And then you know what you're left with? Filthy rags. And then you know what? The blood of Jesus washes all of that perfectly clean. God doesn't save us because of His mercy alone, however, but because of what His mercy led Him to do in sending His Son. His attribute of mercy is indeed the source of our salvation. His act of mercy in Christ is its ground. And this is implied in Paul's previous statement that the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Remember that word is epiphany. Showed up. Was displayed. For this saving epiphany clearly refers to the historical event of Christ coming to save Titus 2.11, you remember, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And in 2 Timothy 1.9-10, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, the ground of salvation, therefore, is not our works, but his mercy, as was demonstrated at the cross. Fourth, the means of salvation, how it comes to us. On the one hand, God saves us because of his merciful deed, uh, giving of Christ. That's the ground of our salvation. On the other hand, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so here is a composite expression containing four nouns. Washing, um, regeneration, um, excuse me, I misread. Yeah. Washing, regeneration, renewal, and the Holy Spirit. Washing is the word that we get for the... Uh, the laver, we talked about that this morning in Sunday school in the tabernacle, but it's the baptismal font. Uh, this, I do believe, is a reference to baptism, and all the early church fathers took it this way. Regeneration trans, uh, uh, is only used twice in the New Testament, that word, by the way. We hear it a lot, but it's only used twice, and for example, uh, in the other instance, Jesus used it of the final renewal of all things. Uh, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, this is Matthew 19, 28, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory. So that's the other place that the word regeneration is used. However, uh, here the new birth uh, Paul writes about is, I think, individual, as he does in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any... Uh, one is in Christ. He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And then the word renewal refers to the process of moral renovation or transformation which follows the new birth or what we would call sanctification. So we are justified in Christ and then he begins this work. He sets us apart. In fact, I think uh, baptismal sanctification is a great term. In baptism, we are set apart. We take the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
We're set apart, and now he begins this work in us to transform us and conform us to the image of his Son. That's the work of the Spirit. And, of course, the term the Holy Spirit is the agent through whom we are regenerated and renewed. Salvation means more than inward rebirth and renewal, however. It also includes having been justified by his grace. Verse 7, these two works of God are rather parallel uh, and concurrent. And so, because salvation includes both. I need to be made right with God, my sins forgiven and taken away, but now I'm still corrupt. I like to think of it as maybe having had a legal problem. I'm, I've been found guilty of a capital crime, and I'm under a death sentence. So that gets taken care of, the legal part, but I also have a terminal disease that needs curing. And he takes care of that, too. Those together. It doesn't do me any good to, to, to miss the hangman's noose if I'm just going to perish from in, inward disease. So God does both. It's a full and comprehensive salvation. So justification means that God declares us righteous through the sin-bearing death of his Son. And regeneration means that he makes us righteous through the indwelling power of the Spirit So God acts in our justification, and then the Holy Spirit works in our sanctification. Fifth, the goal of salvation, what it leads to. Verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All those whom God has justified and regenerated have become heirs. This is what he saved us for. Romans 8, 14 through 17, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We are united to him. We are now sons of God. And as his designated heirs, we have the certain expectation that we will receive our full inheritance in the new heavens and earth, namely eternal life. This new life or new creation, by the way, has already begun. It's not something we're waiting for. It has already begun in you. Recall how Paul opened his letter, Titus 1, 1 and 2. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And then he adds in, in here in verse 8 of chapter 3, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Sixth, and finally, the evidence of salvation, how it proves itself. These are good and faithful and profitable men to men. Verse 8, the last part. Good works are are inevitable and necessary. They are the fruit and evidence of the genuine work of God in the life of a believer. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul has made it plain in verse 5 that God has saved us not by works of righteousness, which we've done, 
But he now insists that believers must devote themselves to good works. Christians are here for the good of the world. We are the salt. We are the light. Indeed, everywhere the gospel has gone, many blessings have flowed. So to summarize, the six essential ingredients of salvation is the need. The need is our sin, guilt, and slavery. Its source is God's gracious, loving kindness. Its ground is not our merit, but God's mercy in the cross. Its means is the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit signified in baptism. And its goal is our final inheritance of eternal life. And its evidence is our diligent practice of good works. Note also that the three persons of the Trinity together engaged in securing our salvation the love of God the Father who took the initiative, the death of God the Son in whom God's grace and mercy appeared, and the inward work of God the Holy Spirit by whom we are renewed and reborn. And then this letter concludes with a couple of quick notes here, and we'll wrap this up. Titus is to avoid pointless controversy. He says, affirm constantly. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So Paul wants to be certain that our theology is always producing godly fruit. Again, he, as he said in chapter 1, truth which accords with godliness. If all we're doing is debating and arguing over theology and all the details, and we forget to go home and do all the things God said to do at home, then we're missing the point. And then he says, I'm paraphrasing here, in essence he says, I want you to affirm that constantly, and then I want you to avoid these other things constantly. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Now, this is not saying there can be no theological controversy at all, since Jesus himself was a controversialist in constant debate with the religious leaders of his day. Paul himself was drawn into controversy over the gospel. Moreover, he had urged Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith, and he told Titus that false teachers must be stopped and rebuked. It was only the foolish disputes or the speculations that were to be avoided. There seems to be something in certain teachers who match Paul's description in Acts 17 of the Athenians and foreigners who were there in the Areopagus or the market and who spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or hear something new. The same old stuff is boring. We want something new. We want something that's cool. And if I can discover something no one else has discovered then I'm like someone who discovered a star, I get the credit. This approach to the Bible is extremely dangerous since it relies on the rhetorical and creative flourish of the teacher and is not objectively verifiable. The Bible becomes what Pastor Hatting calls bunnies in the clouds. I think I see a bunny there. Well, I think I see a dragon. Well, I can up your dragon. I see this. Paul says, 
Avoid that all the time. Run from that. And then he says, Titus, he takes it one step further, is to discipline contentious people. Reject, verse 10 and 11, reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. The Greek word is where we get our word heretic, which means a sect, a party, or a school of thought that describes someone who is factious, contentious, or divisive. These are those who undermine the legitimate leaders of the church and disturb the peace of the church. And Paul tells Titus that church discipline was to be administered to these kinds of people in three stages. Warn them, and then warn them again. And after that, if the offender remains unrepentant and refuses the opportunity of forgiveness and restoration, they are to be rejected. Have nothing to do with them. Advice I might give you for the Internet as well. It is a serious thing to not receive the legitimate admonition of the church. And Paul says that when this happens, you can be assured that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And then Paul closes this short letter to Titus with his final instructions and benediction uh, to those. He said, when I send Artemis to you or Tychius, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing, and let our people also learn. Here he is again. He wants, he's made this point over and over and over in three short chapters. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. That's the key points. I think about what we teach in speech sometimes. Tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then tell them what you said. And that's what Paul does in this letter, right there. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the theology to help us to know what you think and what you did and how you did it and why you did it. Help us, Lord, to receive that, not with uh, dullness, but rather with eagerness. Uh, Bless us in this, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to the table, I want to visit, go back and visit verse 14 of chapter 3. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. These three admonitions to each of us, uh, come to each of us as we come to the Lord's table to renew covenant with him. First, let me ask you, are you learning? That is, are you growing and maintaining good works? Not, not settled in, but looking around. What else can I do? How can I improve? Specifically, I think he's alluding to the good works that were enumerated in Titus 2, from last week's sermon. I heard from many of you that Titus 2 has something for everyone. And so if you didn't get hit last week, you must have been asleep, ducking, dodging, because it, it, there was something for everyone, right? As older men, how are you pursuing sobriety in body and mind, reverence, temperance, sound faith, love, and patience? How are you doing? 
Older women, are you continuing to demonstrate reverent behavior, not talking negatively about others or being busybodies? Are you not given to much wine, teachers of good things, and are you admonishing the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed? Are you doing that, older women and younger women? Are you receiving that instruction? That's what Paul means about growing and maintaining good works. Young men, are you maturing to have sober or serious minds in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, and is your speech the kind that cannot be condemned? Employees, are you working hard to be obedient to your bosses, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity? Are we all learning to maintain these good works so that the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you? Second, are you meeting urgent needs? These will be brief here. This means are you actively getting to know people so that you will know what their urgent needs are? Are you being hospitable? Are you visiting with different people, getting to know others? we got a church full of people, a lot of new people. Do you know them? Do you know their children? Why not? What are you going to do about that? Are we just coming to the table so we can eat bread and drink wine? Are we coming here to be reminded of what Christ did for us so that we can go do it for others? Are you maturing and finding ways that you can be of service to others? Third, are you being fruitful? A lack of fruit is an evidence of a lack of faith. And I'll conclude with what Jesus said in Matthew 13. Now he, it's after he gave the parable of the sower and the seed, and he's explaining now about the seed that fell on the thorns. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. You've heard the word today, last week, the week before. And the cares of this world... Your job, Christmas shopping, your friends, whatever it is that's important. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. I want some more money. I want some more of this, more of that. Choke out the word and he becomes unfruitful. All those things we've been talking about, they're not there because this person... Jesus says, is in pursuit of other things. But he who receives the seed, that's the word of God, on the good ground, he says earlier, that's a noble heart, is he who hears the word and understands it and who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. That's what we're coming to the table for now, is to make those fresh commitments for this week, starting today. Let's do so. Father, we are grateful indeed that we were called together in Christ, called out from the world, and indeed you have begun a great work in all of us. And though we limp and are weak and often weary, we pray now, Lord, that you would strengthen us even this morning 
Send us out to live again, renewed, refreshed, committed to following Jesus. Lord, help us. We pray now that you would go with us in Jesus' name. Amen. But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.